Welcome to episode 129 of The Professor and the Hack. I am the Hack, Hugh Rimmonson, and with me, as always, the Professor Peter Van Onselen. Uh, g'day, Pete. G'day, Hugh. Big week. How's your mortgage, man? Well, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's going up, or at least the interest bill is going up, isn't it? Uh, we're, we're not in a position, fortunately, where it's a big deal. But for a lot of Australians, it's a very big deal because they got into the market when rates were at these insane historic lows. And even if they built a little bit of fat into that for expected rises, I think a lot of people have been surprised, not just by the extent of the rises, and there are more to come, but by the swift speed of them. You know, we've had one every month since May. And for the most part, we're talking about 0.5 rises, whereas anyone who'd been watching this for the years previously, a 0.5 rise was not something they were used to. You know, they were used to reductions, but it was all, you know, we're we're talking 0.25 rather than 0.5. I do think from here on in, though, we're likely to see quarter of a percent changes rather than half a percent changes month to month as the Reserve Bank looks at what comes next. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because CanStar, which is an organization that does a mortgage comparison service, essentially issued a survey yesterday that they had done. They think that 64% of Australians, this doesn't matter to them at all. They're either net uh, depositors of money or their mortgages are small or their means are large. It's about 24% who are at risk of stress, actual stress. Mm. And um, we went out to uh, Marsden Park, which is in a growth corridor, as they call it, of uh, northwestern Sydney, where everyone has these big houses, these sort of McMansion blocks. Everyone has big mortgages because for many of them, they've, they've borrowed heavily to get in there. And the people that we spoke to out there definitely were feeling it. They were definitely worried about their jobs because this is the key to, um, to whether you can continue to do it is can you just stay employed? There is this kind of, I feel, a rather casual view of with unemployment so low, we don't need to worry about it. But that can change. That can change. And to me, that you know, Bessa Detta, who's the chief economist at the Westpac Business Bank, says that uh, the Westpac puts a 30% chance of recession, not, not high but not nothing, mm. and says that the Reserve Bank is happy to risk a recession in order to bring inflation under control. Would you agree? Yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because, I mean, overseas, there's deliberate design intent to actually cause recession. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of the United States, but also in other countries where they're, they're virtually spelling exactly that out. They're prepared and wanting to have a recession to take the heat out of the market to help reduce inflation. In Australia, we're hoping to avoid recession, but unequivocally, what the Reserve Bank is trying to do by putting interest rates up is take the heat out of the economy so that inflation reduces. And the simple equation that they're trying to create is if they put interest rates up, they're hoping that that will result in people with a mortgage who therefore have to pay more in interest, spending less. And if they spend less, they're hopeful that they then, as a flow-on effect from spending less, they then will also potentially, if they're investors, put up rents and then people who are renting will spend less as well. So they, the design intent here is to slow the economy. But I guess Australia, unlike the rest of the world, the intent is not to cause recession. But when you're trying to slow an economy, that's where you have the predictions around that 30% mark that you can accidentally cause recession because slow the economy too hard and recession is what follows. And in a sense, that's what happened when rates were going up. It wasn't as politically neutral as they are now, you know, an independent reserve bank, but it was the, the Hawke and, and Keating team that was putting rates up rapidly to try to deal with you know, what happened in the late 1980s surge. And they put them up too fast and we crashed too hard and we had a brutal recession. So it's, it's a delicate balance. It sure is. I guess the uh, business collapse is something to watch already. The construction centre is in contraction. So uh, 
if we start to see businesses drop down, unemployment start to rise up quite quickly, we're going to see the whole political environment for um, the Albanese government get a whole lot more interesting, aren't we? Oh, look, we are. And and it plays into the it plays into what the coalition have traditionally seen as their strength. And I'm going to be fascinated to see whether or not that continues, because in the aftermath of their handling of the pandemic, as well as their doubling of the debt before the pandemic even started, there are genuine and their failure to embrace any sort of meaningful reform. We can now seriously question whether or not they're the economic managers that they've long claimed to be and that voters have long thought that they were. And so Labor now is going to be presiding over a period of rising interest rates, a high inflation, debt will continue to go up and the economy could potentially crash. And if unemployment rises, we've got problems. None of which, of course, is their fault. They've inherited it. But you can imagine the politics of this will result in the coalition, particularly under someone like Peter Dutton, trying to muscle up and claim that this is somehow, at least in part, Labor's fault. Uh, And he'll be able to do that more effectively once they've handed down a mini budget in October a budget next May, if things are still brutal in the second half of next year, then the rubber hits the road in the politics of this, even though I do think uh, that the politics of this uh, are far from accurate, Hugh, would be the way I would put it. You call it the mini-budget in October. It's being styled as a budget. What can the government do to really affect anything in October? What what should we be looking for? It's, It's galloping upon us. Well, it's got to be very targeted in how it spends because any stimulus that it pumps into the economy will, by definition, have an inflationary effect. But if it's highly targeted spending, then you can reduce the inflationary effect but maximise the benefit for people who need assistance because of cost of living pressures. They can't do nothing, Hugh, because their whole campaign, their whole raison d'etre was that cost of living is a problem and therefore voters need support or some voters who are struggling under cost of living pressures need support. So I feel like they need to do something, otherwise that's just empty rhetoric. But by the same token, they can't do too much because they've inherited what they admit is a difficult fiscal situation and that's bef- in terms of debt, and that's before you even get to the inflationary effect of budget spending. So th- the short answer is it's a catch-22 that they're in, but to the extent they can do anything, they can spend a little, which is highly targeted, and then they can say, well, that doesn't have the inflationary effect that wider spending might have, It doesn't have a huge impact or impost on the budget in terms of growing debt, but it does provide cost of living relief to the Australians who need it most. And other than that, they can just do more long-term changes to the economy, which they've already pledged in the election with things like childcare, for example, to try to improve productivity, which can have that sort of growing of the overall pie effect longer term. None of which, though, uh, which I suspect is where you might be wanting to go with this, none of which is the wholesale major reform that the nation is crying out for, but they can't do that in October. That would be something for May anyway. They need longer in government to be able to sort of dot the I's and cross the T's about exactly what they want to pitch, and they're probably not even likely to do it in May. I would, at most, if they're going to do it, think that they'll wait till the following budget and then make it a sort of a countdown to the election where they might pledge to have more wholesale reform, which involves, yes, reducing income taxes, but increasing wealth taxes redistributing arrangements between the Commonwealth and the states, but put it all forward as a basket or a suite of reforms, which they then have to seek a mandate for so they can't be accused of their small target strategy from the last election having been a furphy. Uh, And that would then allow them potentially to make adjustments to the stage three tax cuts. So for example, Hugh, they're due to take effect halfway through 2024, which would be a little under a year before the next election is due. They could perhaps defer those 
without being accused of breaking a promise and then go to the subsequent election having deferred them, promising to scrap them or amend them, reform them, bring them into a suite of other reforms around tax and federation, and then seek a mandate at the election. That would be a a potential way to get around this. But all of that rests on one very simple assumption that I'm not so sure is true, which is the assumption that they know what they're doing or that they give a shit when it comes to major reform. I don't know. I'm not saying they don't, but I just don't know if Anthony Albanese, Jim Chalmers, Katie Gallagher, you know, the finance team, the leadership group, if you want to bring Penny Wong and Richard Miles into the mix, I just don't know if they really understand all of that or give a shit. I want to pick you up on that question, but just on the business of can the tax cuts, the stage three tax cuts, be deferred without it going through the parliament, given that they're legislated? Uh, well, you would need to seek legislative reform to defer them, but they would uh, they would most likely achieve that. I mean, it's possible that the Greens block that and say, no, we want you to cancel them altogether and play politics with it, but then they would be able to put their hands up and say, look, we're not going to break an election promise not to repeal them and therefore be held to ransom by the Greens and be perceived politically to be in bed with the Greens as it gets referred to by the Conservatives. So it's possible that the Greens play politics with that, which might work for their base. But the hope for Labor would would more be that the Greens accept that by deferring them, if Labor wins the subsequent election, they will repeal them with the Greens' support because that's what they're going into the election promising to do. It depends how hard Adam Bant wants to play on that. Yes, you had to mention the Greens actually saying, yeah, look, we were, you know, obdurate on this point and consequently the stage three tax cuts have gone through. It's a very hard one for them to argue. But I want to take your, your larger point, which I think is, is that does this government give a shit about reform? And I thought it was really interesting to see those great lions of an earlier generation, Kelty, Bill Kelty and Paul Keating, sitting down to lunch with the Australian Financial Review, which has made a big fuss of 30 years on since superannuation came through there. And a point that Keating made, you know, he, he credited the many elections that were won. He didn't directly credit Hawke for them, but said that it gave them time to do the things they wanted to do. But he, but he made this point. He said, we never wasted a minute. <laughs> we never wasted a minute. If you want to change the country, you can't waste a minute. And he then said there has been no reform to speak of since Howard and Costello. And he credits Howard and Costello with setting out to change the country and then working to do that thing. And basically, since Howard left office, it is his view, nothing of any substance has particularly happened on the Australian landscape. And if it has been attempted, it hasn't, it hasn't landed, I guess would be his point. And I wondered whether, uh, you know, he's careful not to criticise in any way directly the Albanese government. But does he have a point? A, if you want to change the country, get on and change it and do it and do it and do it and do it and work it and persuade people. You have to be in the, in the marketplace, in the arena, persuading people. And we certainly haven't seen anything remotely like that from the Albanese government so far. He's absolutely right, with a few minor caveats. He's absolutely right that new governments get a limited window and you have to seize the moment, seize the opportunity. He's absolutely right about that. He's also right that since his time, or at least since Howard's time in the first half of his term, for example, when he did GST gun reform and some early IR reforms, there hasn't been meaningful reform in this country. Whether you agree or disagree with it, there just hasn't been. So he's right about that as well. The caveat to that is that, which you alluded to, Hugh, is that there have been a couple of attempts at it, but they've been repealed each time. Work choices, whether you like or loathe it, was meaningful, but it was repealed. The carbon tax or emissions trading scheme that Julia Gillard brought in after promising not to introduce a carbon tax, that was repealed, as well as the mining tax, even though the, the essence of that tax strategically and structurally was gutted 
in the reform process when Rudd was replaced by Gillard. But nonetheless, those were meaningful reforms, but they were removed uh, and repealed by the Abbott government. So they're the only real meaningful attempts and they were removed. So that's a caveat on what Keating says. But here's the other thing. I think politics has changed. And I don't say this happily. In fact, I lament it to some extent. But once upon a time, politicians could sort of, in a sense, promise nothing or little at an election without ruling things out at the said election, like the 83 election, which was essentially a a small target strategy by Hawke and Keating. They didn't have their hands on the Campbell report, so they didn't pledge to do all the things they instantly did around micro and macroeconomic reforms after they got into government, the period that Keating describes as where you've got to, you know, take the reins and really get on with it. They didn't promise any of that, but they didn't promise not to do it, importantly. And so in the aftermath, there was more tolerance for the political class being able to, you know, if you like, get on and do something that they hadn't promised at the election. These days, politicians are sort of deliberately drawn out to rule out possible changes. And it was a small target strategy by Anthony Albanese in the wake of Bill Shorten's defeat. And they did rule out things like repealing the stage three tax cuts, for example. So the the circumstances to some extent have changed uh, in the media landscape, as well as the way politicians operate and rule things out. And so that's another reason why it's harder now, I would argue, than back then. And one very quick final thing, John Howard did uh, very little in his first term, a little bit of IR reform, and yes, uh, the gun reform because of uh, an opportune moment, uh, you know, in, in, in awful circumstances, obviously, with the Port Arthur massacre. But he then took his GST reform, which was really his most meaningful reform, he took that to the 98 election because he knew that if he didn't take it to an election, he would be gutted at the subsequent election. He took it there, he scraped over the line. We can discuss the ins and outs of how he got over the line, but he did with less than 50% of the two-party vote. And then he went about legislating it in conjunction with the Democrats. Anthony Albanese would have to do the same, I think. So in other words, he loses his opportunity in his first term because of his small target strategy and his ruling out of things that he would otherwise plan to do. But he wouldn't be going into a second term election with 90 plus seats like John Howard was in an albeit smaller parliament with a massive majority. He would be going into it with a majority of two, very slender, and and you know potentially therefore losing his majority in winning and therefore losing his capacity to even implement what he's got a mandate to implement in his view because he becomes a minority government even were he to win. So it's, it's a tough situation, but in essence, yes, Paul Keating's right. And uh, John Howard was up against Kim Beasley. Anthony Albanese will be up against Peter Dutton and can expect a... Uh, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> but Peter Dutton would see an opportunity there to, to get things back by just simply running a very... One presumes, you know, we know his style. But, and Beasley ran a weak campaign. I mean, that, you, that's your point, I, I realise. Like, Beasley... I, I know that someone like Paul Keating felt that Beasley's anti-GST campaign in 98 wasn't up to the challenge, even though he did well at that election. Whereas, of course, in 93, to, to win an unexpected victory in government, Paul Keating ran a very powerful anti-GST campaign against John Hewson's bid to campaign on that exact tax platform at the 93 election where he obviously lost. Yeah, it's very hard to win with something which looks like even tax reform, but which people perceive as being tax rises or tax increases. Let's take a quick break. Lots more to discuss. See you in just a sec. Welcome back. You're listening to The Professor and the Hack with uh, Peter Van Onselen, uh, PVO, The Professor, and I'm The Hack, Hugh Rimmington. Uh, lots to discuss. Let's, before we move on from domestic politics, Philip Lowe is the governor of the Reserve Bank. He's the man with his hands on the levers, and it seems 
a bizarre coalition of people is now determined to see him turfed out. It, this, I've, there are very few issues which unite the Greens and Matt Canavan <laughs> in, uh, you know, constantly in high vis with coal dust sprinkled across his, uh, across his face. But the one thing they agree on is that the um, governor of the Reserve Bank should go. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm also critical of him, very critical of him for what he had to say about there'll be no interest rate rises until 2024. I think he might have even said the end of 2024. And obviously, uh, that was an ignorant comment to make and a stupid comment to make, because even if he felt that the economic settings at the time suggested that might be the case when he did say that, which was not that long ago, I don't know that the Reserve Bank should be prognosticating in that way, because people take him at his word. There would be Australians who chose not to fix their interest rate who were weighing up doing so because they saw Philip Lowe, the Reserve Bank governor, who controls the levers of monetary policy, who decides largely with his board whether rates go up or down, and they would say, well, we don't need to, honey. No need to put rates up. You know, the Reserve Bank governor is all but committed that they won't go up until the end of 2024. That's years away. So we don't need to fix our rate at a slightly higher rate than it is now. We'll just stick to the variable rate, which the Reserve Bank governor, who's in charge of things, has told us is, is rock solid where it is for a while to come. Well, he was wrong. Firstly, Hugh, he was wrong when he should have known better, because at the time he said that, the inflationary pressure abroad that was going to have a contagion effect in Australia was pretty damn obvious. And I remember talking to economists real time at the time who were saying that was a crazy thing for him to say, and that is how it has turned out. Now, I don't think it means that he should lose his job. I don't agree with the Greens or Matt Canavan that, that you should just turf the guy out. But I do think he should be rightly admonished for it, and I do hope that he learns from it. To some extent, the Reserve Bank always in its last paragraph of its interest rate statement makes the point, hey, here's a few things we think are happening going forward. He did more than that when he said that rates won't go up until 2024. He was more explicit than that. But you know, in the latest round, for example, Hugh, they just made the point, yes, we, we expect there to be further rises, which is what they expect, but they give themselves wiggle room. Okay, They're not definitive about it. And the problem for me, and I've never met the man, but the problem for me was that Philip Lowe seemed to sort of morph into the theatre of commentator a little bit when he was suggesting that they won't go up until 2024. Uh, he was exceeding his remit. And his remit is to be a professional economist and bureaucrat who understands monetary policy and therefore makes sound decisions one way or the other. He basically got caught up in the rhetoric when he shouldn't have. Yes, and economic history suggests things can change. They can change for a whole bunch of reasons that are unforeseen. He has sort of apologized to it, and he, he tried to make the point, which is a fair point, but lost on the crowd, I would say, that he, he didn't make a commitment that interest rates wouldn't rise. It was merely he had expressed a view that they weren't going to rise to that amount of time, but the subtlety gets uh, somewhat lost in it. And you make the point that it stopped people, say, fixing mortgages at lower rates, but the people, are, uh, I think, probably suffered more were those who were trying to scramble every last dollar to get into a, a property. Supported by government policy, by the way, Hugh. I mean... Yes, in, encouraged. Uh, that, that's something that we also, if you want to hold anyone to account, some of the policies supported, some of them in opposition by the Labor Party, but I'm predominantly talking about the, the former Morrison government here. I remember at the time talking about all these policies designed to shoehorn uh, new entrants, you know, first home buyers into the market at a time of record low rates. I remember saying over and over again that this is risky business here because these are people who are already on the borderline of being, if you like, eligible for getting their way into the home market just based on their financial situation or the lack of a deposit or whatever it might be. So a government coming in over the top for largely political reasons to say, well, we want some cachet attached to you getting hold of a home. So we'll give a few incentivizing policies 
it runs counter to their policies around responsible lending that they want the banks to to hold to, and it runs counter to sound economic thinking, uh, knowing that inflation and interest rates are likely to be on the rise, and these people will be the first to go. And also, obviously, in a climate where it's going to have house prices tumbling, so these poor buggers who have been shoehorned into the market, you know, incentivised by government policy, could well have have a situation where mortgages get out of control for them because of repayments in interest rates and inflation. At the same time that they're struggling to pay for daily, you know, living expenses, and their house goes down in value because of the contagion effect of the housing market, and then they get forced to sell potentially if they lose their job or if they just can't keep pace with cost of living. And they walk away, not by handing the keys back, like happens in the US, where you can actually just walk away from your mortgage, hand the keys back and and not take the debt of the difference. In Australia, you can't do that. In Australia, you walk away with a deficit, having had your dream crushed of your first home, and no longer, by the way, being eligible, Hugh, to get any first home benefits next time because you have been a first home buyer. You walk away with potentially a 50 or 100 or more thousand dollar debt and no asset. These people are the people we've got to bloody well find as journalists when the time comes to to hear how they feel about things, because that's just going to be profoundly awful for them. And it's not their fault. You you can understand why they want to get into the market. It's the fault of governments chasing votes rather than thinking with their brains. Yeah, we'll certainly see it by the end of the year if these interest rates continue to rise as the expectations go. There's that very real risk. Of course, there was at the time an enormous demand on political leaders, the Morrison government, et cetera, to find ways to get people into their homes. Because the argument was is that there was an intergenerational unfairness about the fact that older people, boomers and so on, were well secured in their properties. Then reform the tax system. Oh, my God, these politicians don't have the guts to reform the tax system. They always take the easy option. It just drives me nuts. Let's talk about some international stuff that's going on. And there is a lot going on. The the Chinese ambassador went on to ABC 730 for a long interview with Sarah Ferguson which really revealed, you know, that old line, I looked into the, I looked into the man, I could read his soul, as uh, George Bush said of Vladimir Putin, immediately thereby misreading his soul. <laughs> uh, but we got a fair sight of the um, Chinese ambassador last night on a number of matters of concern to us. One of them is Taiwan, in which he indicated both the lack of patience, strategic impatience of China on reunifying with Taiwan, uh, but also what that means for the Taiwanese, saying that uh, secessionists will be punished according to law. So anyone in Taiwan, and the polls clearly indicate that most Taiwanese people do not want to be reunited with mainland China or invaded by mainland China, however you want to phrase it, but that they'll be punished according to law. That looks horrible. And the more so when you see this UN report into what's happening on with the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province in that vast reach of Western China, where this is a population who are Turkic, not Han Chinese. They are Muslims to a large part, traditionally cultural Muslims, who can suffer all kinds of punishment, ranging from torture, we're told, amounting to crimes against humanity or likely to amount to crimes against humanity, says the UN report for such crimes as uh, growing a beard or having a social media account is enough to put you into torture. Having a social media account is torture, so I suppose we... Yeah, it is. It is It is at least something that you can uh, drop. But Penny Wong has made the point that there is obviously some sort of moral obligation on us and that we'll be acting in concert with other nations to see what we can do about this. But it does put us back into that situation again where we're unequivocally in a moral contest with the country that underpins our entire economic well-being. 
yeah, it's hard to know where this is going to go in any way that avoids uh, rising tensions, possibly leading to catastrophe as opposed to, you know, sort of a, a reduction in, in tensions, isn't it? And, you know, the, the Hong Kong example, which I know you you know, know well, Hugh, that, that you know, they're, they're not even close to, to having the pretense of, of what they had initially when, when Hong Kong was returned to China versus where it is now at. You know, with Taiwan, it's, it's just bullet of gate stuff from China. And, you know, the idea that they're going to not only take over and remove, you know, if they were to take over, remove all the sort of rights that Taiwanese people have, have come to understand in, in, in their structure, their genuinely democratic structure now, but the idea that they're going to seek retribution on anyone who was, if you like, standing in the way philosophically from China reclaiming Taiwan, that is just frightening uh, and would be all the more frightening of course, for anyone in Taiwan who falls into that category. I mean, it's it's a country, if that's what we call it, of, you know, what, 20-odd million people. It's 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 got high levels of wealth and has had for a long time. It has democratic rights, even though it initially did not. And it sees itself as, as independent. And it, it flirted for a while, you know, democratically with making its own decision to return to the fold of China. But of course, from then to now, popular opinion, which was relatively balanced, is now overwhelmingly in favour of not unifying with China. So where does the retribution end, Hugh? I mean, I get the impression that China's at the point now where they don't care about the Taiwanese people at all. They're not trying to win over the Taiwanese people at all, like they had done strategically before with soft power attempts. Now they just want the bloody island. They want the island as a trinket in their overall view of what, you know, what China is supposed to represent now that they're as powerful as they are. And the idea of winning over as many of that 20 plus million population in Taiwan is no longer a goal, which also is worrying, isn't it? Because it sort of leads to this notion that they therefore would have minimal concern potentially with the casualties that might be attached to some sort of military endeavor to take that island. I'm not suggesting that they would be prepared to flatten it and then walk in there uh, uncontested but they might be prepared to do some halfway house between that and, and, and soft diplomacy that leads to getting hold of it. It's a scary, scary situation. That it certainly is. And, uh, you know, one looks at Ukraine, uh, which is essentially an annihilating war. You crush everything, you blow up every damn thing. You know, the prospect of that happening if Taiwan was to seek to defend itself is, is beyond belief. However, one of the questions now being put around Australia's response and we're really talking now about Xinjiang and the Uyghurs, is whether we become party to sanctions against China. Mm. And we've been, the, in a sense, the victim of trade sanctions from China because they got upset because we wanted an investigation of the origins of COVID and said as much. So how brittle do you think that relationship is in economic terms for us, given that it underpins fundamentally a huge chunk of Australia's wealth? Well, we need China more than China needs us. But China needs a collection of versions of Australia as much as that collections of versions of us need China. So there's a lot of political, uh, you know, if you like, cautiousness that should be being exercised by the Chinese leadership at the moment because things aren't going swimmingly well over there. And they need to be careful because there is a, a collective capacity of the West to fight back if it becomes a black or white debate uh, with China over things like sanctions or anything else for that matter. But everybody loses uh, if it comes to that, would be the way to put it. You know, if 
if we end up embarking on a, a trajectory of sanctions with China, it will massively harm the Australian economy. And if it's done collectively, it will massively harm the Chinese economy. Where does that lead? Well, the hope from the West would be that it leads to greater turmoil within China because they don't have democracy than it does within the West. We just sort of tolerate the economic negative effects as bad as they would be, whereas they might lead to an upheaval because of a lack of democratic rights that can therefore you know, be tapped into. But I'm, I'm, I'm not certain that that's where it goes because I could easily see the nationalism within China, which is very strong, leading to, if you like, a, a, an anti-Western sentiment taking even stronger hold amongst the population than it might currently be the case were that to happen. You know, it would be very easy, I think, for the Chinese government to turn sanctions on the West when they're delivered by the West by tapping into nationalism. And we know throughout history how dangerous tapping into nationalism can be, Hugh. So it's a, look, it's a vexing situation to, you know, to be a little coy about it. That's what it is, though. Yeah, I think uh, you talk about tapping into nationalism, it may increase the risk that there's some sort of invasion of Taiwan or something, just because there's nothing like a war to, uh, to, to focus support for whoever's in charge. Yeah, very much so. On that rather, rather grim note, it's a beautiful spring day. I hope everyone around the country's uh, getting out and enjoying it. It's final season. I hope your team goes well. There's a lot to enjoy rather than the prospect. <laughs> oh, it's my favourite time of year, Hugh. I don't know about you, but uh, yeah. footy finals, September, the changing of the seasons, it's such a such a great time. Let's be positive. It's a, it's, a, it's a great time to be slothing around watching sport and then occasionally enjoying the sunshine all at the same time. Absolutely. So on that, in the spirit of that, let's uh, dance on out <laughs> the daylight. Uh, great to talk to you, Peter. See you, mate. Listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.